live and in person. Um, sorry for the late news on that uh, decision. It took us a, a bit of time to come to it and make sure that we could have all the right pieces in place to, to, uh, to, to join together in person. It seems like yeah, even with the, when a couple weeks go by where uh, we have to go virtual again, um, going back from that to live, like it's all of a sudden it feels daunting. Like there are all these different things that like we have to figure out and make sure they're in place and Sometimes that takes time to get in order. So thanks for your patience. We really do appreciate that, and we really are excited to be together this morning. Hello to everybody that couldn't be here today. Um, we're glad that you can gather with us virtually. Um, we're in a series, yes? I think we started a couple weeks ago. Um, we're looking at the book of Genesis, which uh, our story this morning for Cultivate Kids was also from Genesis. That was from the end of uh, Genesis, and... We are still at the beginning of Genesis. Um, this is the last week in chapter one, I promise. Uh, we'll get to chapter two next week. Um, but uh, it, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to discover in chapter one, as it turns out. Uh, a lot of implications for the way that we read this uh, first chapter in our Bibles. Um, and what we're doing in this series is we're looking at Israel's origin story. Israel is the nation that came out of Joseph and his line, um, and, uh, and, and how that relates to our origin story. So we're calling this Origins for that reason. Uh, we're also doing a dialogue on Wednesday nights, um, so if you happen to be free Wednesdays at 8, come join us. Uh, you can come and bring your questions, bring your ahas, bring your uh-ohs, uh, bring your uh-uhs, you know, all, all, the, all the sounds. Uh, because there's more to unpack than what we can get to in, in this little bit of time. So that's happening on Zoom still. Week one in this series, we talked about why. Why do we have this origin story? Why was Genesis written? And um, we discovered that uh, Genesis's purpose is to give God's people an identity. Who are we? Who is God? How are we distinct from other people and other gods that you may have heard of? And then last week we talked about what? What is creation? And we discovered that um, creation, unlike some other origin stories about gods like Marduk and Baal, who have uh, little buildings, uh, places called temples where they dwell and they do all their business from those little uh, rooms and places, our God, Yahweh, made creation as a temple to dwell in. All of creation is a temple that God dwells in for the purpose of being with those that he created, us, human beings and everything, together, so that he could share his love and his life with us. It's a different story. So we talked about why, we talked about what, today we're going to talk about how. And you're like, finally, we get to talk about how God created everything. And I'm sorry to disappoint you in like the first 30 seconds, but we're not going to talk about that how. Uh, we're gonna <laughs> because to talk about that how would be to miss a bigger how. And the bigger how is how, how does God actually reveal himself? What do we see when we look at Genesis 1? How does that point to the way that God speaks both about himself and reality? And how does he um, show us who he is? Can Genesis give us answers in that direction towards that question? I think it can. 
Um, so, again, we're going to look at Genesis 1 again. I, I've kind of highlighted the, um, the verses that, that talk specifically about God speaking, and I'll come back and talk about why that is. Um, but starting in verse 6, going to the end of the chapter, we're kind of kind of hopscotch our way through it. Um, Genesis 1 verse 6 says, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault. We'll talk about that word in a minute. And He separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters. He called those seas, and God saw it was good. Verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Verse 20. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. And it was so. Then God said, verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seeds in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, all those creepy crawly things that we talked about last week, everything that has breath in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Why are we talking about this? We're talking about this to proclaim the way that God reveals Himself, the way that God speaks. And what we discover in Genesis is that God is not revealed in abstract principles alone, but in timely places to real people like you and me. This is what the incarnation of Jesus is all about. When Jesus comes to earth, it reveals the God who always does this. He takes on flesh and He dwells among us. This word is called incarnational, in the flesh. And the good news that we proclaim today is because God is incarnational, you don't have to choose between science or faith. You don't have to choose between reality and spirituality because God can be trusted with what is true. Even if we can't comprehend or fit it all together yet because the goal of our faith is not certainty. It's trust. Um, I would have you guys raise your hands, but you know, I know who you are, and, and many of us know who you are. There are so many people that, in our church that have um, been involved in some kind of leadership in youth ministry at one point in time or another. Um, you've been involved in kind of shaping the lives of young people as they go through the experience of the church. Um, and uh, I've... In, that wasn't my experience because I came to faith in college. Um, so uh, sometimes it's been hard for me to like relate to what that's like to like get duct taped to a wall and have like uh, pizza thrown at you and I don't know. Um, <laughs> drink Mountain Dew until it comes out of your nose. 
Um, but uh, but one of the reoccurring stories, uh, as I've talked to many people who have uh, given time and energy to shaping uh, kids in their experience with God, is watching kids who uh, develop a sincere uh, faith in Jesus Christ. Um, watching them grow in not just their understanding of the Bible, but their appreciation, their love for the Bible and for God. And they, they, they get to a point in their life where they think that they have all the answers, or at least that they should have all the answers. But then they get out of youth ministry, and they go to college, and in their freshman year, they encounter classes like psychology and earth sciences, and their faith is shattered. They're confronted with the reality that there is a world of information out there that they weren't exposed to, and in fact, that they were taught to be afraid of. And they feel stuck. Many in this room who grew up in the church could name more people who walked away from the faith than those who kept it. And it's all because they had this faith crisis when their Christian bubble burst. And one of the reasons uh, that I think it was such a traumatic experience for so many is that they were taught within the bubble that the Bible is, in fact, written to answer all your scientific questions. That that's its purpose. So if you have questions about how the world was created, then you take your 21st century scientific questions and you go to the Scripture and you find all your answers. But then they get to college and they're confronted with a whole different set of answers to questions that they never dreamed to ask before. And the crisis ensues. Do you, does anybody know what I'm talking about here? I mean, I asked this question last week, but what do you do when your faith is based on the absolute certainty that Scripture teaches that the world is 6,000 years old and that God created it in seven literal days? But then you get to college and you're taught that the world is 3.5 billion years old and that People have been around for much longer than 6,000 years. It creates this, this um, crisis moment because you, you, you feel like you have this choice to make, that either uh, you can turn off your brains in order to keep your Christianity, or you can do all kinds of mental gymnastics and say, like, the, the earth only looks like it's really old, but in fact it's really young. And here's all the ways that that came about. Or you can leave the faith altogether. And many have done so. Many have left here and done so for these reasons. So today, I feel like it's important to actually give you a fourth option. A fourth option. That you don't have to leave the faith and you don't have to shut your brain off. You don't have to hate science as though it's evil. You don't have to do all these weird calculations to make the Bible and science fit into this neat and tidy system. And that's because the good news is that God doesn't reveal Himself through abstract principles. He reveals Himself in timely truths to real people. God's Word is incarnational. It takes on flesh in a culture. This is who God is. Not just Jesus, but always. 
And so the good news is we don't have to choose between science or God or reality or spirituality because God can be trusted with what, in fact, is true, even if we can't fit it all or comprehend it all because the goal of our faith is not certainty, it's trust. Um, let's take a look at this. Genesis 1.6, I mentioned we were going to come back to this. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. What in the world is going on? What in the world? Like, have you ever read that and thought, huh? What is happening here? What is happening here is a clue about ancient cosmology. I was talking with David. He used that word. I'm glad at least one person in the room uh, has heard the word before. And I, I'm not surprised that it was David. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's, let's make this a less scary term. Cosmology just means the origins of the universe and how things work in the cosmos. It's the study of the cosmos. Cosmology. Okay? And um, we have a cosmology. You may not realize it, but you have one too. Um, ours tends to have the sun with the eight planets revolving around it, right? We'll show this picture a little bit later. We think of the earth as a globe spinning around the sun in the vastness of space. Ancient people, though, including Israel, had a different cosmology, a different understanding of the way that the universe worked. And it looks like this. Now, you probably can't read all those little words up there. But this is the understanding that Genesis has when it's talking about separating water from water with this vault called the sky and the earth being in that space. It consisted of four realms that are stacked on top of one another. Okay, so you have the water above. This uses the word firmament. Has, there's a, uh, what do they call that? A, a 50 cent term? Help me out here. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the waters above, you have the vault or the skies which hold up the, the water. You have the land or the earth, and then you have waters below the land. So the earth was a flat round disk that floated on cosmic waters. And it was held up or suspended by columns or pillars. This is columns of the earth. You see those things jutting down? That went down into the deep. They observed that the sky was this dome shape. That's the word vault. And that the sun, the moon, and the stars were embedded into that dome. And that the dome, um, above that dome was more water, and the dome held back the water, but not always because it rained sometimes. There are these things called the floodgates which are in the corners, that open up sometimes, and that's why water falls. Okay? See if this doesn't sound familiar when we turn a couple pages and read about the flood narrative in Genesis 6. This is what it says. Actually, Genesis 7. On that day, all the springs of the great deep, the abyss... Hey, go back just for a, for a second. So, you see the abyss down there, the water underneath? The springs of the great deep burst forth. Water from below comes up. And the floodgates of the heavens opened. 
and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. In the ancient understanding of the way that floods work, both the water from below and the water from above converge and they create a flood. What they're doing is they're trying to make sense of their experiential reality. The sky looks like blue water, right? I've seen blue water. It's water. Okay, the sky looks blue. I can't touch it. That must be water too. Why doesn't it fall? Well, it must be held in place by a dome. Okay. It doesn't come down because of the dome that keeps the water back. God separated it with the sky, water from water. They notice that if you dig long enough, kids, I would tell you to go home and dig, but the ground's a little frozen today. Um, but if you did, you, well, today you'd find ice, but normally you would find that water is underneath everything. They're making observations. I have three points to make. The first one is this, that the Bible was not written to teach us science. It just wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't written to teach us quantum mechanics or relative physics or interplanetary science. But it uses, it, 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 it embodies established understandings to reveal who God is. And this is the way that God has always revealed himself in timely ways to real people. So we've been talking about this on Wednesday nights. Um, but one of the questions that I posed was, can you imagine if God decided to reveal himself to someone who lived 3,000 years ago, who had this understanding of the way that the world works, and says, okay, the first thing that I need to do with you is teach you relative physics. There's no way. They don't understand what the theory of relativity is because they don't know who Einstein is because he hasn't come along yet. That's not how God works. See, we get into trouble when we ask Scripture to do work it was never intended to do. A couple days ago, it was really cold. I decided to make a fire. When I went to make a fire, I discovered that my fireplace was entirely full of ashes. And so you, if you have a fireplace, you know, like you've got to scoop out all the ashes to get it cleaned up before you start put in a new fire. So I'm trying to do this. So I grabbed the trash can from the bathroom, which has a grocery bag in it. And I go up to the fireplace, and I'm scooping all the ashes in. And it gets full, and it gets fuller, and it gets fuller. And I go to take the bag out. And lo and behold, there are two holes in the grocery bag. So when I tie the knot on and I lift it up, what happens? Ashes everywhere, right? <laughs> They're pouring out from both sides. Why? I'm asking the grocery bag to do something it was never designed to do. This is called a sermon illustration. It's the same thing when we ask Genesis to give us answers to modern scientific questions. It wasn't intended to do that. Um, the latest survey that I could find from Barna on um, Christians and science happened in 2012. I know there's been more since then. But at that point in time, 72% of the general population agreed that churches come across as antagonistic to science. 
And I can't imagine that that number has shrunk since COVID. If anything, it's gone way up. Part of the reason, though, is because we've been asking the wrong questions of our origin story. One of the scientists who helped um, map the genome, his name is Francis Collins. You may have heard of him. He recently um, retired uh, as the director of the National Institute of Health. Basically, he was Anthony Fauci's uh, boss. And he wrote a book called The Language of God, which is basically his love letter as a Christian to science, uh, talking about the ways that science leads him to worship. And uh, one of the things that he says in The Language of God is this. I do not believe that God, who created all the universe and who communes with his people through prayer and spiritual insight, would expect us to deny the obvious truths of the natural world that science reveals to us in order to prove our love for him. What um, Dr. Collins is saying is that if the earth looks three and a half billion years old and we're using the same faculties, instruments, and knowledge that we use for all the good things that science gives us, like curing diseases and flying airplanes and mapping the genome, then we don't have to deny what science is saying just to prove our faith to God. In fact, to do so harms us. God doesn't hate science. I shouldn't be the first person to say this. He loves science. He created science. He loves it if you love science. And you want to make a career out of it. You know, we were talking about dreams for the future. Kids, if you want to be a scientist one day, go for it. It's awesome. Anything that we observe about our natural world that's true is not in conflict with our story. Now, that doesn't mean that all of our observations about science are true. But it does mean that we, we as a church should do everything in our power so that none of our kids will grow up, go to college, and think that they have a choice to make between science or Christianity. It does not have to be this way. And that's because the Bible isn't trying to teach us science. It embodies the established science of its own day to reveal who God is. And that's because God doesn't reveal himself in abstract principles. He's always revealing himself in incarnational ways. Timely truths to real people. So we don't have to choose between modern understandings and ancient understandings, between science and God, real or spiritual. God can be trusted with it all. Because he knows what's true. And the goal of our faith is not our own certainty, but trust in that God who holds everything together. So that's the first one. The, the Bible is intended to teach us science. Um, second point, God accommodates to us. You know what I mean by the word accommodate? Accommodation? Um, many mornings, not so much anymore because it's really cold and I don't like the cold anymore, even though I'm from the north. Um, <laughs> before all that, um, I, I would walk my kids to school many days. And um, when I walk my kids to school, I'm always having to tell myself to walk slower. 
Now, I know my legs don't look long by adult standards. They're not. <laughs> but compared to a five-year-old, they're huge, right? And if I walk at my normal stride, then my five-year-old is either going to have to run or lag behind. And so what do I have to do? I have to accommodate my walk to his so that we can walk together. This is sermon illustration number two, so keeping score. Um, God, similarly, God accommodates himself to us. When he reveals himself, it's not void of time, it's timely. It's not abstract, it's particular. So for instance, the Bible doesn't teach that the sun is at the center of the solar system because it doesn't understand what a solar system is. It teaches that the earth is at the center because that's what they observed. The Bible doesn't teach that we live within a vast galaxy of billions of stars because that would have been inconceivable for someone who lived 3,000 years ago. They didn't have the categories. And here's the point. God knew that and accommodated himself to their level of understanding at that moment in time because of his love for us. He slowed his walk. We see another example of this in Genesis, or um, not Genesis, New Testament, Galatians 3, verse 24. Paul is talking about the law. You guys know what the law is? Starting with the Ten Commandments. Um, so think of, think of the Ten Commandments. Paul says this. So the law was our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. What's he saying? He's saying the Old Testament law was given to Israel as this like custodian, as this caretaker, to take care of them until Jesus could come. Why would God do that? Was he just like playing around with people? Going, like, let's see how long we can make them wait until I give them something better. Is that, God, is, is that what God's like? No way. No, ancient Near Eastern people ordered their cultures around law codes. The Ur-Namu, the Lipit Ishtar, the Code of Hammurabi, other uh, fancy-sounding words. Um, these were common law codes of Israel's Day. So when God reveals himself to the people that he loves, he doesn't do it in a YouTube video. He does it in law codes because that was the language of their day. You see? Thank you, yeah. I mean, Netscape wasn't coming along for like at least 3,000 years. Paul sees the Old Testament not as this timeless, abstract truth that's good for everyone in all places. It was particular and timely truth for people that needed it at the moment in time to hold them and prepare them for Jesus. We see this accommodation all through Scripture. We read another one today. Maybe you caught it. I included it at the end of Genesis 1 when God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, they will be yours for food. Everything that has breath, 
the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. Did you catch it? What's it saying? I mean, I love meat as much as anybody. But every time I eat a steak, that's, a, that's an accommodation from the way that God designed my body to work. You see it? And not just me, and not just you, but like tigers and sharks. Everything that has the breath of life in it is given plants to eat. But God makes an accommodation for it. Not only that, but divorce is accommodated too. Jesus said, you weren't supposed to get divorces, but because you are, God allows for it. Polygamy, which is a, a fancy way to say having many wives, was common in ancient Near Eastern cultures. God doesn't come to this culture and say, you've got to get rid of this whole idea in order for me to love you and to speak to you. No, he comes to them and accommodates to their cultural understanding. doesn't mean he endorses it, but he accommodates to it. Having a king in the first place was an accommodation. God hated the idea that Israel would have a king. We'll talk about that more next week. But he accommodated their desire. I could keep going. Violence, slavery, retributive justice. When Jesus says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say to you, he's saying this system of getting back at people for what they've done to you was God accommodating your need for justice. But something better has come along. The issue is, I think, that people read these things in the Bible and they think that God is somehow endorsing them just because they're there. He's not. The God does not endorse slavery. God does not endorse the subjugation of women or violence or polygamy. Any of these things. It's an accommodation. And when he accommodates, he doesn't endorse. And that's because Scripture both inhabits the cultural understandings of its day, but it also moves people towards new ones. By the time the New Testament comes around, Paul has the gall to say there is no male or female anymore in the kingdom of God. That whole thing about the subjugation of women that you guys have been used to for 2,000 years, in Christ it's being put away. He's moving us to a new reality. He's bringing us forward into the redemptive kingdom of Jesus. So yes, he accommodates where we are, but then he draws us forth. Does that make sense? Number one, Genesis isn't teaching us science. Two, God accommodates to us whenever he reveals who he is. And number three, our faith is in Jesus, not in the certainty of our faith. Our faith is in Jesus, not the certainty of our faith. And so the goal of our faith is surrender and trust, not certainty. I think um, part of the issue is so many young people who go off to college and find their faith shipwrecked is this, this idea that if I don't have all the answers, then my faith is ruined. But the only options are, I, I either have to have all the answers to my questions and all the answers to all the other people's questions that ask me questions about the Bible, 
or I can't have faith anymore. And I want to suggest that 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 understanding is based on a misnomer that, that our faith should be in our faith rather than our faith be in Jesus. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus. And this is a huge temptation for religious people to replace um, a person with our thinking about that person, with our constructs, our understandings, our doctrines, our answers. And not only does this kill us because we will always have questions that we can't answer, um, but it also kills us because um, then the faith that we do have is in the way that we answer the questions. And if, you're, if your faith is based in the answers that you have, then that will lead you to become rigid, defensive, antagonistic, insecure. You'll make enemies out of people that we're supposed to befriend and to love. We'll be unable to be flexible and to repent and to change our minds over time. It's not a bad thing to change your mind. And that needs to be said more often in church. We'll have to convince everyone of the way that they're wrong and we're right in order to hold on to our convictions. But if I have faith in Jesus and His faithfulness to me, then I don't need to do that anymore. Because my faith isn't fragile, because my faith is in Him, not in my understanding of who He is. But if I have faith in my thinking, then your contrary thinking threatens the very ground of how I understand my faith. Friends, we can live not knowing how everything works because the goal of our faith is not certainty. It's trust. It's faithfulness. It's surrender. This makes all the difference in the world. Now, um, maybe to help us grasp this a little bit, that we're more like Israel than we know. Um, you remember that picture that I showed you, the ancient cosmology, water is separated from water, the sky, vault, all that? <clears throat> um, if that's their cosmology, their understanding, then this, this uh, is more like ours, right? You've seen this before. Kids, have you seen this in, in school? The sun's at the center. The planets spin around it in orbit. Sorry, Pluto. Yeah, yeah. This month, Pluto's out. We'll see you about next month. Um, here's the thing, though. How, how many of you know that this picture of our solar system is inaccurate? In what ways? The distances, size, scale, not perfect. Yeah, they're all in one plane. So many things that you guys are aware of, right? This is a model that's trying to tell us a truth about the way things actually exist. So in order to tell us that truth, it has to distort some things in order to convey what the truth is. Did you know that one of the things that we're missing is the fact that this model doesn't move? So this week I discovered a video that shows more accurately the picture of what our solar system looks like as it goes through time. You want to see it? Now let's go.
It's still not right. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. So most of us know that our our planet is orbiting around the sun at like 67,000 miles an hour. But you, did you know at the same time our sun is orbiting around the center of the Milky Way galaxy at 448,000 miles an hour? So when our when our planet like when it's what's today? Um, January 23rd. When it's January 23rd next year, we will not be in the same place in time and space. We will have moved one year times 448,000 miles an hour. Um, now, if you're like me, you just discovered this. <laughs> I didn't know this before this week, but guess what? I've been able to live as a faithful earthling for 41 years. I had no idea this was happening. Now think for a minute. Those ancient Israelites with their abyss and their sheol and the vault holding back the waters, that's who we are too. Because we don't have perfect knowledge. We're still discovering who we are, where we're going, where we've been. Our understanding is about the cosmos and how it all fits together. The things that we understand now, they tell us true things. But there are also so many things that it misses. And my point is this, that God doesn't reveal Himself in timeless truths alone, in abstract principles. In 50 years from now, people won't believe that this was news to us. They just launched the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to tell us all kinds of incredible things about the universe. Things that we can't see right now. But that's good news because God always accommodates Himself to us. He reveals Himself to real people like you and me in timely ways when we need it. This is what the Incarnation is all about. God in the flesh. When God wanted to come to you and me, He didn't drop a science book on us or even a truth book. But He came in the flesh just at the right time. So the good news is that we don't have to choose. We don't have to choose between science and God, spirituality and reality, because God can be trusted with it all. And He's inviting us to trust Him, not with the certainty of our understanding, but with the love of our heart. So, we got to respond. Because um, I don't know about you, but I, I don't just want to get smarter today. I want to be formed into the image of God. I want to grow in my worship, not just my mind. Um, and I think one of the ways that we do that is maybe by submitting to Him areas that still feel like questions where it doesn't fit together, where all the ends don't meet, where we still have major problems, might we, in response to God, submit those things to Him and ask Him to be able to trust 
and surrender, even while we don't have our answers answered. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, um, we thank you that you come to us as we are. You don't expect us to be people who live in the year 5000 A.D. in order to speak to us here and now. You're present and at work among us, just as you were present and at work in the people of Israel in their time, in their day, in their understanding. You meet us right in the midst of our time, our day, our understanding. And so God, we thank you for the, the pieces of our story that have been revealed to us, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he died for our sins, that he rose on the third day in fulfillment of all these scriptures. That he now lives and reigns and is present and at work through his Holy Spirit that he sent to us. There's so many things that we can rest in because our faith is in you. But there are so many places that we still have questions where the, the ends don't meet. Maybe it's science for us, maybe it's something else. But Father, we um, submit those things to you and ask that you would help us to trust and love you even as we wrestle with them. God, thank you that you can be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>